welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. And we're rolling. We are rolling. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to a knock-on podcast from deep, deep, deep and down inside the JRE studios. We're in the compound. We are. We are in the fun factory. Locked and loaded. What's the official name of this new crib? It doesn't have one yet. We We got to come up with a name. Yeah, at some point we'll have to figure that part out. Maybe during this podcast. Possibly. Who knows where this is going to go. We got a little squirrely yesterday. <laughs> yeah, this one at least we're sober. That one we got we got whiskeyed up, went off the rails a little bit. Yeah, Fun we were, times though. We were all whiskey bent, but <laughs> it uh, that's your style. It was good. And then today we came in uh, sobered up and did some shooting. Been playing around, trying a whole bunch of different stuff, and uh, getting our archery on. So. Yeah. What do you want to talk about, man? What's well, on your mind with archery? You're you're officially getting ready to kick it off again. Yeah, well, we're going to Lanai, and uh, I'm overcoming a couple of little injuries, so I haven't shot for a while. I've been uh, healing up this elbow. I've got this thing going on in my elbow, and my shoulders have been bothering me. My shoulders feel perfect. They're not bothering me at all, but my elbow's still messing with me a little bit. So uh, just concentrating on my technique, figuring out which broadheads I'm going to use, we learned a lot in this place about the sound of broadheads yep. because this is a big cavernous warehouse and there's uh, concrete polished floors and it's 45 yards to the target. So you could hear some of the broadheads whistle. So the difference between the shuttle T-lock and the Montec G5 is what the G5 Montec, the uh, carbon steel one is what I used last season. That thing whistles. Mm-hmm. Like, I told you that. It's a it's a good head overall. It's a good bulletproof design. It's worked really well for a lot of people, but it does have a little bit more noise. So, I mean, people that hunt out west a little bit more and do experience some longer shots, definitely something to factor in and for sure something to factor in with something like an Axis that are on twitch level 100. Yeah, those little suckers, <laughs> they're, they're ready to fly away. I mean, I've never seen anything like them. I think uh, for Axis, um, when we go to Lanai, I'm going to go with the uh, the tripan. I'm pretty sure that's my move. Yeah. I just feel like, especially the way you have it set up, where you put that little rubber band over it as well, the tiny dental rubber band. Yep. I think that's pretty bulletproof. The the Rage tripans uh, do have a slight modification on the collars this year versus last year. The the little tabs on the collars actually have just a little bit more coverage of where it hooks around the blade. And that's really important because on some of the previous collars, if you tighten it down too tight and let the collar turn the opposite direction, it was very, very close. And some people just were having deployment a little bit easier than what they had experienced before, like, say, with a with a hypodermic or something like that. So 
The new collars are definitely better for that. I think the material seems like it's a little bit harder too. It's not as mm. soft, so it, it almost kind of snaps open versus kind of bends or bends out of the way. And then, yeah, I do take some small dental rubber bands um, personally, and I actually slide them over the top and I put them right where the blades are crisscrossing in the lowest part of the blade. Uh, because as that blade is pushed back, it doesn't really restrict anything there. And then it cuts the, it cuts the rubber band really quickly, um, on the edge of the blade as it's doing. So it doesn't really do anything for penetration, especially since the, the blades are sliding backwards and they're not flipping backwards like the old jackknife style. Like a swacker, right? Um, yes. Yep. Or like an old rocket arrowhead or spitfire or something like that. But, um, I do that for a couple of reasons. I put that secondary on there simply because one, if I'm loading my arrows in and out of my quiver, um, a lot, especially if you're on spot and stock where you load it in, you take it out, you load it in, you take it out and you're continually moving. And if you're crawling or trying to fish your bow through like brush and stuff like that, I like just having that secondary, um, it's not something that they really talk about, but it's something that I do. Um, and then also just, there's been times where people will set my bow in the car, like, you know, we'll be in the guide's truck and he'll take my bow off, you know, for me getting my gear out and he'll set it in there and set it down on the arrows and the arrows plunge up in my quiver and end mm -hmm. up deploying them. So I just like having that little bit of extra. So, um, if you buy the replacement collars, they come in this small little plastic canister. It's probably, I don't know, how would you describe it? Maybe the size of a thimble, a little bit bigger yeah. than a thimble. And um, I actually have one of those in my little release pouch that I carry with me all the time. Um, and that way I've got a couple extra collars and I have some extra little rubber bands in there too. That way if, you know, a lot of times you go and someone that you're hunting with is like, hey, let me check out your broadheads. And they pull them out and then they jam in your, in your quiver a different way and they end up deploying something because they're not used to having that style. So I like to have the backup. Yeah, I've, I've accidentally deployed them by touching uh, twigs mm -hmm. with uh, while spot and stalking, like the broadhead, just the edge of it, the blade edge, touched something and popped loose. I've accidentally deployed them, pushing them into my quiver, on my tight spot. I was sticking it in there and it popped yeah. Um, I think uh, you just got to be real careful. Anything that's pushing into foam in particular, if you're pushing your arrow into foam, it's going to deploy. The tripans have a very long blade that comes back too. So a lot of times if you, you know, you can be backing up in brush and the, a brush will catch the backside of the blade and almost pull it yep. around. You know, it's yep. not pushing it back the direction as if you're penetrating an animal. It's almost flipping it the other way mm -hmm. and they deploy almost easier that way you know because it's the collar really isn't main uh designed to for it to be pulled around that way it's more designed to have just the right amount of pressure as it's being plunged through something so yeah that's the benefit to me what i like about the idea of uh fixed blades is that you don't have to think about that it's one less thing you got to think about you're spotting and stalking and just you know you just you don't have to think about that you just think about making the shot well, this podcast is perfect timing-wise because the last one was just all about broadheads with uh, Bill Pellegrino, and it's a continual debate. You can talk about fixed blades versus mechanicals every single day, and the same types of points are going to come up, mm -hmm. you know, the pros, the cons. Obviously, it's nice to not have something that 
deploys by accident. It's also nice to, um, I guess, arguably sometimes have better penetration, especially if you're just shooting like a, a single bevel, two blade style head. I mean, cause you're not really comparing apples to apples. Um, but likewise, you have a little bit more maintenance on the other side of things. Like, you know, if you're shooting a fixed blade, blade, especially at our speed, you have to spend more time indexing, you know, squaring off that arrow shaft, taking a little bit of material off the end of the arrow shaft so that your blades correctly line up with your fletchings. Um, and, you know, just making sure all of them have the same indexing. And then sometimes if you're shooting certain ones, you may have to sharpen them or touch them up depending on the style if they don't have like replacement blades. So there's benefits to both. And we ha we actually have not shot a Muzzy Trocar. Did we forget that? Again? No, yeah, I forgot them at home because the ones that I brought accidentally, I brought Deep Six ones. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Um, do they whistle? No, they're pretty dang nice. Yeah. Yeah. Short, compact. I mean, the trocars are my favorites. I like the trocars. That's um, what Cam shoots too. And also, uh I have not shot the new Rage Extreme though, with the with the big fixed blade on the front. I haven't personally shot it. Um, that thing the, looks like you're just throwing a bunch of knives. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it's so crazy. Yeah. That it's is a crazy looking head. That's like a leopard on meth coming at you. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Um I, there's so many good heads out there. I mean, there really are. There's good ones, but it all comes down to blade sharpness too. And, you know, Bill brought up a pretty good point. You know, some factories, the more they get into making mass production, you know, you look at some of these smaller companies that are making a really cool head, as soon as they have to actually start keeping up with demand of being popular, then all of a sudden that's when you have to start seeing maybe a slide in the quality it's mm. unfortunate but it's just nature of the beast mm. i mean these smaller operations that are making a really cool one-off broadhead once they're i guess once they're having to ramp it up they they can only handle so much and then something ends up giving way and a lot of times it's a part that they have to rely on someone else to make for them at that point so it gets tough it's i don't know i like i like mechanicals the most but there's certainly applications for fixed blades and there's certainly times where i you know i'd like to shoot a fixed blade just because but i've shot mechanicals so long i just don't even really think about it you know i think it's just one of one of those parts of your gear to where if you think about it each and every time you go hunting it just becomes second nature to you know not ram your broadheads in a quiver or, you know, you just kind of have to be cautious when you're carrying them around, you know, especially if you have them in your hand off to the side and you're trying to walk through brush. You can't let the blades hook on things as you're walking through and pull because it's just, you know, they just pop open. That's just nature of the beast. And you always keep like one or two fixed blades on you? Yep. Yeah. Why do you do that? Mm, I think there's times where maybe uh, there's a follow-up shot where – you know, I might have to ram it through some brush or something like that. You know, that's the only downside with mechanicals. If you do have to shoot through some obstruction, um, and it's not my first choice, but the fixed blade is always like my follow-up just to, you know, I want to get something in there, um, to be able to have that recovery happen. So, and, and you shot a few animals this year with yeah, the fixed blade, right? Yeah. Last year I shot, I started, I think the first one was in Oklahoma, for whatever reason, I was sitting there and this buck took a long time to come all the way across this food plot to me. 
And by the time he was halfway across, I ended up just saying, you know, I'm going to shoot this thing with a trocar just because I ha I haven't shot one with a fixed blade in a while. And I mean, it just zipped right through him. He probably went 40 or 50 yards, piled up. It was a really good blood trail. I mean, super good blood trail. And um, a few days later when I was still out, because you have two tags in Oklahoma, I ended up using the bra, you know, I'm like, pulled the trocar out again and said, I, I think I'm going to use this thing. It was kind of fun. It's just something different. I mean, you're the perfect example. You continually want to try different stuff. Yeah, I'm always tweaking. Yeah, you're tweaking all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but a lot of times you'll tweak and you end up going back to kind of what worked really well for you before that too. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's good to know. It's peace of mind. It's peace of mind to know there's nothing really that's necessarily working better for my setup. Um, the setup that I have is good and here's the reasons why. So, I, I mean, I like trying all kinds of different heads. We shot, um, that Strickland head. Strickland Helix. Yep. Yeah. We shot that head, which flew good. Um, looks super durable. I mean, we haven't shot it in anything to test its durability, but just by looks alone, it's going to be a durable head. Um, and that's it, the reputation too, right? Yeah. Super durable. Yeah. And it was quiet. We shot shuttle T-locks, which I had shot um, for many years prior. Uh, I shot those for sure in the early 2000s. I shot a lot of shuttle T-locks um, and then moved on to Ulmer Edges, shot Ulmer Edges for a while. And then I switched to Rages, the Hypodermics, and then now the Tripan and the Trocar. Those are kind of my go-to. I like them. They all fly really good. Yeah, I shot my first elk with a trocar. First bear with a trocar. Yeah, you did, that's what you had? Yeah. Yeah. Zip right through? Yeah. Yeah, I like trocars. Um, I just think, you know, if you're looking for a big giant hole, it seems like not just mechanicals really, but hybrids. Hybrids are the – like there's some – pretty crazy hybrids i haven't <laughs> tried the uh, muzzy hb hybrid yeah have you tried that one yep How yeah do you like that the there's a new hbti what does that mean it's made out of titanium titanium ah. and it has a little bit more of a jagged blade like almost like a serrated edge hmm. for a little bit different cut um i like them they fly good um again it's just understanding function of the broadhead and making sure that the you know those are like almost like a spring-loaded blade they kind of have you know to where they there's not a rubber band on them so you have to make sure you pinch the back blades and get them to fully close down on the ferrule mm. um, otherwise you can you know you could pull them out um, out of your quiver you could have one of the blades lifted um, it's gonna fly terrible yeah the nice part about it is you don't have collars you know right. it's the way it's loaded you can just squeeze them flat and it's totally ready to shoot it's not going to change during the shot why doesn't rage do that why do they go with uh, a collar some small plastic part well they're two completely different types of like the the hb is literally just a scissoring blade so all they do is you know essentially when you push on the front tabs it just swings them open and then mm -hmm. they they pivot in the front of that broadhead, whereas with a Rage, it's an actual sl rear slip. Mm -hmm. It slides down and then deploys out. So it's just a different a different way of, I guess, getting to the same thing. Um, but the, the cut diameter on the HBTI is a little bit um, definitely smaller than the Rage. 
but it is a four, you know, it's a four blade cut design. So if someone's out there testing like four blade or uh, four fletch arrows and they really like how their four fletch fly, then that could be a really good option to look at um, because they fly good. I shot a bunch of hogs with um, the HBs one year ago when the when the original HBs first came out. Now the titanium ones came out and they actually look like a little bit better. Hmm. Yeah, the only thing I would think of with those is when you're dealing with all those blades and all that surface area, you would deal with less penetration. Yeah. I mean, the more the more stuff you have cutting through, obviously, you know, the more drag you're going to have going through. That's just the reality. That's why, you know, a two-blade head, um, you know, if you took like an original Muzzy, like just like a Muzzy Phantom or something that has that cut on impact two-blade head up front, you know, you can grab that arrow and hold it head high up in the air and let it go down to the ground, and it'll it'll just stick in a piece of plywood and be standing there. Whereas if you try to do that with a blunt tip type broadhead, it's definitely not going to be penetrating right away. Um, that Strickland one would definitely penetrate really fast. Um, the Montec will penetrate fast too because of the design, but it's also beveling to three blades. So it's going to not penetrate as good as the two blade. Um, but I think, I think all of those are good options for people. I mean, I'm, I'm a rage fan. I like the tripans. I've had nothing but good luck with them. They've bailed me out of some, some hits that I wasn't super happy about. Um, so I'm, I'm going with what's helped me out. I mean, they've actually helped me out. So, um, I'm going to stick with them mm. or, you know, I'll always have that trocar there as a backup simply because for me anyway, the trocars and the, um, tripans actually fly very, very similar, um, in where they hit. So I can just have both in my quiver and I know right what I'm doing. Now, when you release this new site, first of all, this new, this new uh, site you have is awesome. The Sherlock, man, I can't wait to try this thing. I've got one right here. I'm clicking it. Yeah, it's pretty badass. And yeah. you were telling me that you can actually take that click out, that sound, so that you could adjust it completely silently when you're in the field. Yep. Yeah, it's pretty easy to do, too. And it also has a button that you can press that allows <coughs> you to just slide it up and down with your fingers really quick and easy. Yeah, it's got a, a quick slide. You just depress with your finger, and you can move it. Um, I've over-tightened this one because I've been working on... This is still one of the very first ones, so they keep having me try different adjustments. And, and have you it. been shooting that on your bow? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, this one has the 29,000 um, scope housing, uh, which is what I shoot for target. Uh, the scope housing for the hunting version will be a 35. I don't think they're going to do a 42, but it'll be a 35, which will be a little bit bigger. Um, and we also talked about doing an actual dual pin, dual up pin, so that um, for people out there, there that are used to having that top pin and then a second pin, um, you'll be able to to have that as well so this works out really good i i'm really liking this site right now it's super easy to adjust it's bulletproof and really for what it is it's it's lightweight the scope is really heavy duty um which 
it's always nice to have overkill out there because that's where the majority of the vibration resonates mm -hmm. to is the very end. Um, so there was a couple different ways. I haven't seen how, but they were talking about making the, the pin attachment to where you can just remove these two screws here and essentially attach this whole rig right here, right to the side of the multi-pin housing. Uh, the other option would be to just buy an entire front end attachment like this to where you know you'd be able to just keep your target uh scope and all that stuff or you can um just remove this thing go with your hunting one it's pretty cool and your hunting one you're using um 0.29 pins yes yeah which i liked yeah. i I'm, i had a site that i was using earlier this year it was a 10 i didn't like it way too hard to see the pin and then I went back to a 19, which is what I used last year. But then I picked this up, and I was looking through the 29. I was like, man, for low-light situations, that exactly. is badass. And it's not so much bigger that it's, like, covering the whole target or anything. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the low-light is really what where the difference is for me. I, there's a lot of pins where I really like having that fine little dot for aiming and being able to shoot. But in saying that, you get in a, a deer blind or a turkey blind where the light is limited and you get those small little teeny fibers that are running through kind of an entire sight frame, they just end up being very, very hard to see. And I don't like having a full dependency on a battery. Where's the light? Speaking of batteries, where's the light going to attach on this? Um, well, depending on which one you use... Um, the one that a lot of guys are using in 3D, actually, um, it'll be a small little box that you can mount on your roller guard or your cable slide, and then it's got a wire that goes to it, and you can literally, you can shine it different ways. It's got a small little LED that shines. You can either mount it here to where it's shining in that way, or the end of the, end of the, the scope rod is actually threaded, so you can thread on a light sight here, too. I've got a very long fiber on this one because I like having the tail to gather more light. Um, and a lot of times I'll actually mount my little lights on my bow itself and just shine down to the fiber rather than illuminating the whole thing. Hmm. That's part of the problem with some of the um, the lights that actually screw onto the end of the, the sight housing and then shine through it or the end of the scope and shine through it. It illuminates the scope so bright that in low light situations you can see your pin you can see your your sight but you can't see the target because it's just you got too much brightness and flash close to you and it bleeds out what's behind it so this will be a really really good option and if you you know the scope this scope um, does have a shade for it that's pretty nice if you know if you're a 3d person or if you're shooting a lot of field where you're out in the bright sun and you're trying to get a more even picture on your site uh and have your glare be very consistent with the glares and the framing that you're seeing this has a, a very easy screw on uh shade which works awesome but you know if you remove that scope part and just hold the site i mean it's about as light and friendly as you can get. I mean, it, yeah, it, really, really, is. it really is good. Yeah, I over-tightened that bit a little oh, bit. Did, if I, man. Yeah, if you were in the field, this would be a nightmare. <laughs> well, 
Um, yeah, I was trying to, uh, and all you have to do to adjust that tension is right on the very front there, on front right there. See, all you have to do mm -hmm. is either tighten that screw or loosen that oh, screw, and it's really easy to adjust. We're talking about the vertical, um, the vertical play in the site. Um, a lot of sites out there, target sites, once they start to get some play in them, um, you can't really get that out. This is actually nice. It has a very simple one-turn screw that compresses that front block against the vertical frame either more or less. So you can either have it slide really easy just with the thumb button or you can make it to where it's tight and you actually need to have the positive clicks each and every one. So you have two uh measurements here you have one side that has a bunch of numbers on it which looks like it's a uh, laser etched into a piece of steel yep and then the other side where you would put a sight tape mm -hmm. have you thought about doing like a laser etched steel sight tape like cbe has i think they will i think it is going to be coming yeah yeah that's just, a smart move just Looks calibrations good. yeah just to have calibrations i mean a lot of those ranges um for sight scaling is pretty um, it's pretty standard. I mean, it's most, of, most of it's just mathematical. So a lot of times they'll just print, you know, have scales that are pre-lasered anywhere from 270 up to 300 feet per second, mm -hmm. um, which will be really, really nice. Yeah, yeah. This, this site's great. It has a built-in level on it as well for your third axis. So Oh, built-in? Yeah, it's right here. Oh, wow. So this is... This is already square and level to the frame. So um, if you ever want to do your third axis, this is now no different than having like a specialty archery block on there or mm. a hamski block mounted to the frame. It's built in. So all you have to do is uh, put your front sight on with your scope. And then you just have to pretty much get your two levels to match and level your second third second axis first then you can check your ups and your downs and see like right here downs mm. right on right there see yeah both dynamite and you can adjust your second third you know your second axis this way your third axis this way and so you think by may these would be ready to launch i think that's the plan yeah i mean they were supposed to you know it's been a year it's been a year in the working. And are you going to go to the 35 housing with uh, four pins, or how many pins are you going to go with? For hunting? hunting. Um, yeah, for hunting, I'm definitely going to go with um, the four pin. I think it's four, even if it's five, but I have heard that even if you want to have the fifth, you can remove them. So you can have a three, four, or five. You can take your pins in or out. Mm. Um, and you'll also be able to change the color of your fibers. I actually changed this fiber myself. It's really easy. You just loosen this bottom screw. The pin comes out of the scope. Your actual up pin will come out of the scope. Um, the other thing too, I didn't tell you about this, but the with this, with this Sherlock scope, it actually has um, the option to mount your sight pin um, at noon, 1.30, 6, like you can take this pin out. If you loosen this, you can take it out and you can bring your pin in from the side. You can bring it on a quarter angle if you want. Whoa. 
some people now are liking to shoot their pins more kind of coming in from the side like mm-hmm. this. So give you a clearer side picture. Yeah, so yeah. that they're not blocking underneath the target. Mm. So that's pretty cool. You can choose any of these locations. So, I mean, you've literally got 12, 6, which is normal to be either up or down. But you can also go directly from the sides or coming in at 45s. So if you used to shoot a multi-pin sight, say, and you like having your sight come from the side, you can do that with a single yeah yeah you would have to do it for you would have to just do it with one um so you're definitely cornering yourself to a single pin but it's mainly the target people that are liking that Mm. um so now i want to talk about um these new laser sights and these laser rangefinder sights yeah and what do you think like the pros and cons are the two big ones are the iq which has fixed pins and it shows you what the range is and then you would gap shoot in between the fixed pins and then there's the garmin which doesn't have a pin at all it has a <coughs> digital pin or a, what would you call it a led pin that just shows up yeah yeah it has a it literally has like an led strip that projects a reflection onto onto a mirror how how limited would you be with range with something like that like um, could you, could you like shoot 110 far- yards yeah, you could potentially you could almost have a little bit more range because that LED will run from the top of the glass all the way to the bottom of the glass. Mm. Um, but there's a couple things like once you meet your max distance, you can't like slide the frame down because it'll change. You know, if you're moving that head anywhere, you're changing the direction that laser's pointing. Mm. So you kind of have to have the the head solidified in one fixed position, the laser compensated and zeroed in for what your aiming point is. Um, and then you have to go from there. And that's With, a good point because I don't want to interrupt you, but that was a, a question that we both had about that new Nikon laser rangefinder that has image stabilization. It's like, is the image stabilizing or is the, the what about the laser itself? Is the laser stabilizing? Like, is the laser moving all over the place but you're getting a really good image because the the images decided to use some sort of a i don't know what they used a repeater well is that what it is well there's a there's two two different things to think about on this and i haven't seen that one so i don't 100 percent know if this is accurate i just know based off things that i've seen in the past and different technologies that i've been part of but you know with a camera um, they do have image stabilization. So essentially what's happening is it's almost like um, it's almost like if you video in 4K and then you have movement, mm-hmm. you have the ability in post-editing to like crop in tighter and literally you're almost deleting off the movement that's on the outside edge of the screen because you're just fixating on one point. Um, there's a lot of different... Um, I think they used to be in the marine side of things. They had um, anti-vibration binoculars, you know, for when you're on boats and stuff. Mm-hmm. So you could lock on, and it would. There, there was some very good image stabilization binoculars out there, um, and it would just fix on the. It would kind of just lock it in. The problem with you know, if it's locking in that picture, I'm not sure if it's locking and essentially cropping off the outside edges and preventing that from happening. I don't know if the laser is necessarily ranging the exact spot because I mean, it's not like it's not like you're you're on a gimbal or something where you're fixing 
the you know it's not like where you're fixing it on an exact spot and you've got a gimbal to where no matter how much you're moving around it's stationary in the middle um so i'd have to try it that's one thing that's important with the rangefinder is understanding that some companies build in um a, a kind of a preset that i was told was called a repeater so there was a time when i'm not going to mention brands but i had a certain binoc uh, range finder that i liked i had another range finder um, that was cheaper in price and kind of in in functionality but i never really liked the fact that if i was standing at my back door shooting like ranging my elk down at the bottom you know, I could sit there with a very high-end rangefinder, and there were times where it would say like 88 or 89, 89, 88. Like it varied. It could vary a yard or sometimes two yards up or down versus with the cheaper one when I would sit there and range it. Like once I range it and range it again, it would just keep hitting that exact same number. When I talked to the company about it, they said that they knew that consumers didn't like – they thought that the product had inconsistency because the numbers would actually change as you're ranging the same thing. So they said they built in a feature to where when you range something, if you range something again within, I think, plus or minus a yard either way, that it'll automatically give you the same numbers what it did before. So it's almost like it repeats. It, it wants to show you consistency. So it's kind of a I don't know. It's like a double-edged sword. It's I mean, cheating. In a way, it, it's hard. I mean, because if you're standing in one position, the target's sitting in one position, you're ranging, and sometimes you're getting a variation of, you know, half a yard plus or minus, and you're not even moving. Um, sometimes it's frustrating. You're like, well, which one is it? Is it 77 or is it 77 and a half or right, is it right. 78? Versus, you know, these guys, nope, you know, they're probably, when they were out showing these products to some of their dealers for the first times, and they would stand in a shop, which most, you know, just speaking, most people as a rep, you go into an archery shop, they're going to stand there, and they're going to probably start ranging mounts on the wall across the other end of the store, and if all of a sudden it's saying 21, 21 and a half, 22, 21, they're going to say, what the heck, this thing isn't banging consistent, so if you kind of preset that program in there to where it, it will repeat itself. If it's within a yard, it'll repeat what the very last number was. Then obviously you get a little bit more assurance that, whoa, this is more consistent. But the program could give, you know, could kind of be giving you a false, false sense of security on that. Does that concern you like within a yard, yard here or there, especially like on an animal? Like it seems like for sure at a hundred. I mean, yeah, you right, start getting 100. over seventy. Yeah, one yard's a lot. How much? Like when you look at a hundred with your setup, how much of a difference is one yard in terms of like your impact point? It's it's it'd be the bottom edge of the elk. Wow. Yeah, if I was like aiming center and then stepped back one full yard at like a hundred, I mean it it could be substantial. Six yeah. eight inches or better. A foot. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's a big deal. Yeah. That's a big deal. Like for a long time, people didn't realize that lighted knocks, some of the, especially some of the first lighted knocks, these are, this was 10 years ago. Some of the first lighted knocks were much heavier in the back of the arrow. So just the overall arrow weight would hit a little bit lower. And what I found was, it was kind of nice to know, is 
at every single distance when I ranged it, if I set my sight, if I took one full step forward, my lighted knocks would hit exactly the same as what my non-lighted knocks did. Just the way that it worked mathematically, you know, those knocks because of the weight might have been eight inches, six or eight inches low at a hundred compared to a standard knock, but taking that one step forward um, made up for it. So I always shot like one yard less than what I was ranging. Huh. That's interesting. So do you think that the better idea is the IQ site that has the fixed pins with uh, the range at the top where you would gap shoot or the Garmin? Well, when it comes to, I guess, just being bulletproof, I would pick, I would pick the IQ. Um, I'm an IQ fan, but even if it wasn't that, I'm just going to say if there's a site that 100% relies on battery, battery operations to illuminate your pins, then that's, I think, really, really important to know because um, I had – well, even on my e-bike, uh, we were down in the rain. We got rained on quite a bit. Um, well, <laughs> my e-bike also in France, when I was in France with Andy, um, I didn't realize it, but on my range finder, um, the little bitty rubber seal that is on, it's like a little gasket that's on the part where you screw your battery into the bottom of your range finder the little bitty rubber gasket that, you know, kind of made that seal tight. The gasket had come a little bit off kilter. So when I tightened it down, it was still somehow just letting a little bitty bit of water in there. And we just got poured on for the five days that we were out there. And all of a sudden on the fourth day, we had uh, two bucks that were chasing a doe around and him and I split apart and I was trying to range mine. And my rangefinder was dead. I was like, what is going on? I thought, crap, battery's out. And I always carry an extra, you know, what is it, like a C123 or whatever. I always carry an extra one in my release pouch too. Um, so I took I took one out. I took the battery case off the bottom. And when I slid the battery out, meanwhile, I'm like doing this behind a tree, like water poured out of my freaking rangefinder. Oh. And I look at the you know, the little stub that you screw on the end and on the stub, I could see where the rubber gasket ring had came off. So when I tightened it on there, it pinched it and part of it wasn't sealing. So I'm literally out there with no rangefinder, but at least I have a sight. Like at least if that thing came in, I could say, looks well, like he's, 30. He looks like 30. But imagine if that same thing happens and you have no sight pins. I mean, you're way back in, you freaking push a button and there's no sight pins. Right. Where with the IQ, it's a fixed pin sight with a range finder built in. Mm. So, you know, you're, it's nice that you can draw back and point that range finder on. Well, you're essentially pointing your 20 yard pin on whatever you want to range. So you put your 20-yard pin on something, you push the button, and it'll you, – or you could hold the button down, and it's just continually ranging no matter where you swing around. Mm-hmm. And then you get the range that says 57. Well, you know, you know, 60-yard pin just underneath the heart, and you're able to just shoot. So I don't – I'm a fixed pin guy. I mean, I, 
we have this discussion a lot on the podcast about fixed pins, uh, single pins versus, you know, multi-pin sites. I'm a multi-pin person just because of the type of hunting I've done. And I've had so many situations where I've had to be on the fly and have to adjust. And like, even on this hog hunt, every single person I was with down there was just like, man, these things do not stop moving. I mean, to try to range, roll, range, roll, like you're just, you're guessing. And it's, you know, that's tough when you start getting over 35 yards. I mean, you really have to know your setup. Well, that one video that you showed me with uh, the bear, <laughs> where you pinwheel it at 20 and then pin, pinwheel it again at 60. Yeah. That, ha- that is, so- if you put that online. Yeah, I think I posted it. Maybe I think I posted it the day I showed you that. That's an amazing video. Mm-hmm. That's amazing because I don't know if I could shoot that fast if an animal wasn't there. Like it's like thunk, whoosh, thunk. Like <laughs> literally, it happens inside of three seconds. You shot that bear twice. You hit it at twenty. It runs real quick, stops at sixty, and then as it stops, that second arrow is on its way to its heart. It's, yeah. That's a crazy video, man. Well, that's also just from years of. Shooting something, feeling like you made a great shot. And did you it, range it again at sixty, or did you know no, where it was? I was no, I just literally when it stopped, I just said that's sixty. Wow! And yeah, pinwheeled just, it. Yeah, because I mean, at that point, <laughs> did you was, rate it after range it after you pinwheeled it, just to see like if you were? Dead I never right? did, but I mean, sixty yard it hit like right exactly right behind the pin. That's a great video. Yeah, it hit right behind the pin. That's one of the best videos I've ever seen to demonstrate why you should have some set pins. Mm-hmm. You yeah, know? that is that is why. And so you have a, a 20, a 30, a 40, a 50, and a 60. Is that what you do? Yep. And then the 60 is a slider? Well, the right now, the entire frame moves up and right, down. Right, but your 60 my is My 60 is the pin I use for my, for my rover pin. Right. Now, on the, on the uh, IQ, you know, if, if your rangefinder quit working on the IQ, you could just still have a rangefinder on your chest which i would recommend i mean if you're a hunter and if you buy either one of these new range finding sites uh whether it's a garmin or whether it's the iq i would still have a rangefinder at least in my backpack you know i always have in my backpack um on the waist belt where it clips on one side of my waist belt i always have one extra release in there because if I drop one or whatever and I'm out in the middle of nowhere, I'm not going back and not have a release. So I have mm. a backup release in my waist belt. And then usually um, usually I have, you know, for sure batteries with me. But there has been times um, when there's a bigger group and we're all going out to like a base camp where I've just said I'm going to take an extra range finder. Because, I mean, I've, I've been on enough hunts where people lose them. You know, like mine, mine was trashed. I mean, mine was mine was garbage. It literally filled up with water. I mean, it was hanging upside down. The water was dripping in. I mean, when I unscrewed it, it was just a pool with a battery sitting in there, you know. So it was gone for good. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It may be dried out now, but I don't know. I bought some other ones just because I'm honestly, I'm probably not going to trust which it. Which range, range finder do you prefer? Um, I want to see this new Bushnell one. I have the um, Leupold one. Uh, it was the Leupold 1200, which I found out that the year that I got mine, which I think mine's an older one, it only had the, the true angle compensation, I think up to about 30 degrees or something, which I didn't know that until I needed it more than that. Um, 
so now the new ones, I guess, go to a much greater angle. Um, and I like I liked them. They were super consistent. The Leupolds were, you know, small, compact. But the new Bushnells, I've heard a lot of good things about those too. Um, and I have, you know, I still have Leica, a Leica rangefinder and a pair of Leica binoculars that I've had for a long, long, long time. And, you know, they're, they're always close by too. I mean, a lot of times if I go on a hunt and I'm, if I'm around, especially if it's hunt where you're fairly destructive on gear, you know, I'll go out and I'm not going to go out and trash a backup pair of binoculars that are super high. I'll take ones that I've, that I've beat up a lot. Uh, actually the bi- the binos that I took last year to Lanai they got smoked with all that red dust and mm. I mean they're like stained like red clay the there were so many times because we got some rain too and I was crawling in that mud um and then it was real dusty being you know kind of cruising around on the trucks and stuff there was a few times I had to clean my lens just with my shirt my shirt was really grubby and I ended up like kind of scratching the coating on the lens so I just kind of save those to just say, hey, if I go on another hunt like this, I'm just going to take these things because mm. I wrecked them. I mean, I trashed them. So I don't know. There's a lot of good ones out there. Um, Zeiss makes a good one too. I've never – Swarovski does. I've just never been a fan of the circle. Like in the – have you ever looked through so the – Swarovski makes a rangefinder? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know they make rangefinding binos. I've never seen a rangefinder. Yeah, it was a small one. I don't think they make it anymore. Maybe they don't. Yeah. Maybe they don't. It used to have a circle in it, so you'd like look through the center of the circles where it would. Well, we range. can Google it right now while we're talking. Google it. Swarovski rangefinder. Um, uh, I have um, for price a though. Vortex, I really like. Yeah, I I've like never the used belt Vortex. Clip on it. I've never used Vortex. Um, I like the belt clip thing. is a, is very sweet. Yeah, just for clipping on this new harness you have is pretty good. I like. I like um, some simple harnesses. I've got the Under Armour one. Um, there's actually a really cool new simple one coming out. Um, I don't think it's out yet, but it'll be out very soon. From S4 Gear actually has a new one that um, that I kind of saw and gave some feedback on and did a little collaboration with. That's it, right? Yeah, that's it right there. Yeah, it's discontinued. Well, bam. They gave up. Gave up. They're out. They're out. Like of the we're range. done. It's hard when rangefinders right now they're pretty cheap, you know. You can, yeah. Relatively, I I think I made a on my story last week or the week before I actually made a um, a post with some original like Bushnell rangefinders. They're literally almost the size of I don't know. They're <laughs> they're massive. I don't even know how to describe it. They're like the size of probably a quarter of a shoebox. they were so big i mean it was as they were the size of a pair of binoculars but it was just the rangefinder. they still have this rangefinder for sale on amazon the swarovski but you have to get it uh used okay well that doesn't count that's probably <laughs> someone like me that flooded it out oh uh, yeah probably yeah um let's see what else uh what else were we jacking around with that would be worthy of people talking about um you've got you've got two bows two rx1s one one is um one is a lighter poundage bow for when you're shooting here at the range at the techno hunt which is um 
the Keith Pameron model, 70-pounder. Yeah. And then you've got your kind of your powerhouse for some of your bigger game hunts, which is right at 80 pounds. And that RX-1 at 80 pounds with, with the new cams and the new let-off, it feels really good. I mean, yeah. it, feels, it feels tighter. I mean, it really does. I almost wish it had less let-off. I mean, it's... Uh, you could. You I like a little bit more that I'm holding back. Like, there's something about when you feel like you're holding that back, it gives you this feeling of accuracy. It might just be psychological, but it's it's very easy to hold it back. The good thing is at 85 pounds, I feel like I could hold that back for a few minutes. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yep. I mean, I'd, I'd like to practice and see how long I actually can keep it held back, but I feel like I could do it for at least three minutes. Well, if there's an elk in front of you, you could double that. Yeah, right. <laughs> With your adrenaline jacked up. That well, also, elk- I've been doing a lot of club bells. <coughs> yeah, those club training, and I do a lot of them where I'm extending my arms and mm-hmm. I'm doing this stuff. Where if you can't, you can't see me. Obviously, I'm straightening my arms out in front of me, and then I pull them all the way to the side so that it's like uh, you know, like crucifix position, and then I put them in front of me like as if I'm punching with both hands, and I do that, and then I do these shield casts and all of it is develop, developing shoulder stability yep. for for holding archery for mm-hmm. holding a bow and it's really good too to do those same exercises and maintain your scapula down you know like when you were just showing me that example your scaps were packed down you weren't shrugging up to right. where your shoulders are coming high a lot of people do that they try to they it's actually that. the same thing people do with stabilizer setups when people grab these stabilizer setups that are too heavy for their bow it's no different than when someone tries to do these exact movements with clubs that are too much for them because they just they can't go all the way out like that and keep the scaps down they end up having to cheat Mm -hmm. and the the you know the shoulder just comes out of the socket the scapula comes up i see a lot of that with people with their bow especially like an important shot they do this and they really shrug up and yeah. tighten up mm-hmm. what is that why are they doing that they're just trying to be steady right i mean i've done it i've done it in some pretty big tournaments where you go from telling yourself the entire time to pull through the shot pull through the shot or you know kind of have that mentality and then all of a sudden it changes to you know better hold tight you know, a lot of those keywords end up triggering you to do those, you know, mm-hmm. need to hold tight, you know, yeah. be solid, stay steady. All those are trigger words to compress the front shoulder and kind of come in tight and be all, you know, be all kind of shrunk in there. Now, I know you uh, you have the Too Smooth that just came out. You have the Knock To It. You have the Silverback. Have you considered coming up with your own wrist strap release? Yeah, it'll, I mean, it's inevitable. Yeah? Yeah. And what would you do? Um, what would you do about this? Really, what would what would be like key factors, like adjustability, the way it sits in your index finger? Well, I don't know. I've been thinking about it in different ways. The wrist strap itself, like the convenience and repeatability on the arm, is pretty important. Um, and then also, I really like triggers that have multiple sears in them so like with the carters when you cock it um you know sometimes you have to cock it and actually then close the head so you have multiple sears that is important because it's just like on a gun trigger where the trigger works off pressure and not off travel so if it doesn't have like spring-loaded multiple sears what happens is you're essentially just dragging 
two edges across one another until they fall off and you can mm-hmm. feel that travel and that movement um, or like some cheap calibers when you squeeze the trigger you can almost see the jaw opening slowly as as you're bending the trigger you just don't want travel like that so i think if i did one i would probably want to try to do one where i have multiple sears um carter had a few that i liked that were a pretty good direction for that but i'd also like to um try to get things contained a little bit better so that uh like the dust and stuff like that doesn't get in there and end up you know that's again there's pros and cons you know you have a very very awesome crisp clean feeling product that you know feels bar none and you're able to make great shot executions but you're also having to you know if you go out and drag it through a swamp you're gonna have to clean it too Mm -hmm. um you know it's just not gonna be as as consistent as or i shouldn't say it's it's just not going to be able to be as bulletproof as a release to where when you push the trigger forward, it closes the jaw. When you pull it, it comes open. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a good system, but it also just functions different. It has different travel. You know, you can. Can that be done with a wrist strap? We press a button, it just clamps down, and then as you're pulling it back, the, the it breaks just like a uh, a finger or like a thumb trigger. Well, they have. They they have some like the one shot or the two shot where you actually cock the caliper release on the side. You cock mm-hmm. it and the jaw closes shut on the loop, and then the trigger is essentially just like a gun trigger. You know, you put your finger on there and you can set it to where it fires with low pressure or high pressure, but it's literally pressure. It's not travel. So if they feel really good, you can get a great shot. It's just in a lot of. Um, a lot of the higher level caliper shooters on the tour shot releases like that. I mean, like guys like Michael Braden, uh, Ulmer shoots um, a little little one called an RX-1. Um, that was, we named it that just because he's the doctor. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he, he is an RX-1. There was an RX-2. One of them opened into the face, and one of them was the same exact release, but it opened away from the face. And he shoots with a finger trigger for hunting, right? He shoots at a wrist strap? Last I talked to him, yeah. What, which one does he use? Do you know? I think it was RX-1, yeah. Um, I mean, he changes from time to time, but then um, – the thing is with those, those were actually, they worked off little magnets on the inside for like self-closing, which is good until you're having to, you know, when you're climb, crawling around on hands and knees and that is wrist strapped to your wrist and it's down there where it's contacting that dirt and grit, you're literally just getting that right inside of that very, very fine edge part where you don't you know you can't have debris in there or it totally changes the tolerance so it gets really tough that's why i like having a handheld release you know mine is normally i like wearing a vest or a jacket that has a top chest pocket because a lot of times my number one release will be in my top chest pocket so i can just zip it down pull that out and it's ready to go and it's kind of been out of the debris then sometimes my backup one or my secondary one is in my side pouch Mm. Mm. Now, it's interesting, too, that Carter has so many different shapes. You yeah. Know? Like, that's just because of the different shapes of people's hands and the different way that people like to hold the release. And But I feel like since you've been doing all these instructionals, more and more people are understanding 
the importance of repeatability of yep. having like that flat position on the hand and having that finger anchor right underneath your jaw. Everybody's jaw is different too, which yep. is, you know, I got to kind of set it down more to get it in my jaw than some people do. And some people would be like up here more. Um, but it just seems like, uh, you almost kind of have to find the one that fits your anatomy too. Yeah, I mean, your hand is ergonomics. It's just, I mean, I don't put on all pairs of gloves and feel like they fit me good. Mm. There's times I'll put on a pair of gloves and I'm like, those freaking fingers are like too long. Or I'll put a next one on and I'm like, the fingers are too narrow. Or I'll put another one on and it's like, right. the, the palm is so damn long on this thing to where when I try to get my hand in the glove, I'm like bottoming out of my knuckles and the freaking glove's halfway down my wrist. And, I mean, everyone's just got different shapes. So that's, you know, that's kind of the point of having all these different types of releases. But what gets tough is Carter's learned this over the years, as most manufacturers do. It's easy to say, you know, it would be the best of all time is this. And then you go through all this thing, and then there ends up being three people that end up liking it. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of times the timeless models, they just consistently feel good to people over and over and over again, which is why, you know, for like four-finger shooters, the Target 4 has been around a long time. I don't even know how long, 30 years. And it's, you know, to some people that like four fingers on a release, it just feels really good. It's a good release. Um, I, I shot with that thing forever. I like it a lot. I just wish they'd have it where it was one push-button close. Um, the first choice is what I went to instead, which is I, I don't like the four-finger one, though, oddly enough. I like the three-finger first choice. Mm-hmm. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Like, the four-finger one feels like it's too much in my hand. It feels yep. too bulky. Mm. But the car, the four-finger Target 4 has a very thin end. Like, mm -hmm. where, where it goes to your pinky, it's very thin. And I know um, how Lee shoots it. He shoots it by anchoring, and he doesn't pull with his back. He's, he just makes a fist. He just sort of closes down on that thing and just slowly makes a fist until it goes off. And he keeps it deep in the crook of his thumb mm -hmm. like that and then just squeezes it like that I actually took a picture of it just to, to run it by you one time but you're not a fan of that no it's it's a setup for punching i mean he's definitely going to be more likely to punch in that position yeah there it is right there that's the picture i keep that on my phone <laughs> i know he also if you uh expand that picture a little bit make it a little bit larger his uh elbow's not very high nope He's got a different... No, because he's just making a fist on the release to get it to fire. So, yeah, he's got a little bit a little bit of facial pressure. His chin's pushing that vein down. You can see where it's actually folding the vein down. Mm -hmm. um, those are all, like, little trouble areas, you know. Those are all areas where if you're really wanting to maximize long-distance shooting, you can clean those little areas up, and it'll make a big, big difference. But, yeah, if you're the type of person that makes a fist on a release, <coughs> you don't realize the importance of leverage and elbow position because it doesn't matter to you. Right. All you're trying to do is just hold it full draw. This position can be different all the time as long as you're holding it full draw. But, you know, and he's just trying to make a, make a fist on the release until it fires. But uh, You're not a fan of that? No. I've seen time and time and time and time again, I've seen – even the best in the world go out and shoot their thumb release and they shoot it like that and then all of a sudden they start aiming aiming they can't go off that thing's too deep in there 
they they might not be making a fist as good because they're already tight and they mm-hmm. don't really you know the next thing you know you end up just seeing them get on it mm, and squeeze it squeeze it yikes i saw you do that about <laughs> two weeks ago oh the techno hunt yep yep i did a few of those <laughs> <laughs> One of these days, I I don't want to. I sure hope it never jumps on your back, man. But well, that's that was uh, that was a game, and there was a lot of shit talking, and uh, <laughs> but that's how it started. Yeah, that's how target panic. That's how I would never panic. shoot an animal like that. Well, I just wouldn't. I know. Well, not now. There's a couple things. One. I I do believe that you could probably say that because you're pretty bullheaded when it comes to any type of addiction type thing or mental thing. Well, also taking. technique. It's very important to me. Yeah, I mean you're you're very passionate about like you don't like you don't like a game to to overtake you because you're not doing it properly. You know, you really like you like the fundamentals, especially once you know them. You like the fundamentals, and well, you can see like when we play pool, mm-hmm. like when I was oh, explaining yeah. to you like what. All I don't of know. It's not things. fair to say we played pool. <laughs> Joe, Joe mopped the floor with my ass for about six hours. <laughs> I literally never won. <laughs> I never won a game. It's a tough game, man. But it's like if you were just starting out archery and you uh, had a shoot off with you know some top flight pro, mm. it would be super embarrassing. Now I'm no top flight pro pro and professional pool but uh i'm a real b player i can actually play a little bit so like there's stuff that i can do that you're just never going to be able to do yeah this would take years it would take years to develop the touch like a full table length draw or a shot with extreme english where there's like a heavy follow and you have to make sure that you're not punching that that's the thing too like much like with a trigger, like you punch a trigger, people punch a cue ball. It's oh, the yeah. same thing. And that ball just slides and does all kinds of goofy stuff. It hops off the ground. If you punch it sometimes, you're actually shooting down on the ball, and the ball literally will hop a little bit because it bounces up off the slate. Yeah. I think I punched several. Yeah. The, there's, <laughs> vi- there's a lot of similarities in um, staying composed under the pressure of the shot. Obviously, the shot is way more pressure-filled when it's a 200-inch mule deer or something like that. There's way more pressure. Yeah. But that pressure is kind of the same. It's just about executing you know, while you're trying to stay calm. Yeah. I talked about it several times in earlier podcasts. I'm not, I'm not really a fan of getting into novelty-type shoots, especially within your club or your shop, to where they're forcing you to like make shots happen. Like I've seen things where there's like floating ping pong balls up and down and people are trying to time it, shoot it. Or um, I feel like even, you know, doing like the clay pigeon shooting and stuff like that, or even like flying fish, I'm okay with that because I'm not using a release. If I'm just using my fingers and I'm using like a recurve bow, for me, it allows my brain to separate the two. Like, oh, okay, I'm doing this traditional archery. This isn't... And that way, when I come back to a target, I'm not feeling any of those, like, little demons in my head wanting me to, like, rush the shot. But with my compound, there's just – I've had panic. I know how hard I had to work to get away from it. Mm -hmm. I don't ever want to do that again. Um, So I avoid all those things, you know, as much as possible. I know that if I came in here 
um, and we did get into a competitive techno hunt, I would certainly just, you know, it's a lot like, I guess, with jujitsu, just knowing to tap out and not, you know, not sit there and try to to man your way through everything. There's a if few I'm, shots in techno hunt where you're really fucked. Yeah, Like you only exactly. have a couple of seconds mm-hmm. and the animal is going behind a tree and you you're, the vitals are exposed for a very brief window and you punch it. Yep. You know? Yeah, and, th- and in those cases, I would have to just be the guy that didn't shoot and be like, well, crap, sorry. But what would you do in a hunting situation? Well, I mean, if they're happening that fast, I probably... Might punch that bitch. Mm, no. No? I would be... I probably... You know, a lot of times... 20 when yards? That, when that screen's coming on, it's just giving you a scene. Right. So if that if I was sitting there watching that bull, I would have already picked my lane... And as he's traveling, I would have said, where is my window? Okay, my window is 10 yards over this way. I would have literally been at full draw waiting in that window for him to come into there so I could get through my shot fast. Mm. Um, there's actually, I don't know if it's done yet. We're using my phone, but the uh, the second Too Smooth video should be posted um, here today, maybe tomorrow. And in that, I talk about learning the hinge release but then also starting to learn cadence and how a release on the same setting you can get to the point where you're understanding the functionality of the release and your preload and your your movement to where a release that even has a pretty long travel i showed where the first time i set it to where it had a long travel i took a shot maybe it took seven eight seconds then the next time i shot it, it was six then it got down to four then it got down to three because i i understand how much it needs to move and i'm committing to it and i'm just you know i'm not sitting there kind of dilly dallying around that's the one thing that can make people really really good as well is learning that's why i like that right release it's not a simul. it's not teaching you how to shoot a bow it's teaching you how to shoot a release. There's a difference. Um, you know, you can certainly focus on your anchor position and your grip position and all that, but what you learn from finger setup to the trigger itself and how much pressure you can get on that trigger and then have your elbow in the exact spot to where once you start to pull through that motion, it's firing without having to do any extra manipulation or you know, kind of end up moving your hand a little stiffer or straighten it out or rocking it forward or rocking it back. You know what I've been doing with the right release too? I've been um, doing it in the mirror and mm-hmm. I try to line my elbow up with the arrow. Yep. So the top of my elbow, instead of being it out, out here, I try to line it up with the arrow. And I so feel like parallel? Just, yeah, I feel like just physics-wise, yep. just with pulling and pushing. It's leverage. But, yeah. It's, it's also, I mean, it just, it feels like, it's in line. Yeah. Everything's in line. And when I do that and I concentrate on going more over the top of my shoulder, because sometimes if I, my technique is slacking, what it slacks on is the height of my elbow. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why. I don't know why. I it's think, hard. But why is that hard to do? It doesn't seem that hard to do. It's the reason why is because most people, you included, when you pull that bow back, you're pulling with more of your lower lat as you're pulling back. Mm-hmm. So once you get to full draw, you're raising that up. And it's the lower you pull at the beginning, the harder it is to come all the way up with the elbow mm. once you get to full draw. That's why I'm a big believer at pointing to the target. Front arm is parallel to the rear arm. 
and they're they're drawing in line so that as I'm drawing like this, I'm you know I'm maintaining posture. When you draw and your elbow goes below your shoulder to pull back, mm-hmm. it totally transfers the load to your lower lat, and then you're somehow trying to manipulate that shoulder to bring the pressure all the way up to the rhomboid. If the elbow's higher at the draw, it's going to remain high once you're, you know, all the way back. Yeah, I'll show you some. Uh, I always pull it back like this. And even I- lower. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes when you do that is when your elbow's low. And what he's doing is as he's drawing, he's, you know, his, his two fists are almost in line, but his, his elbow's underneath the shoulder, almost the height of the pec. And then, yeah, as you draw back like that, it's hard to load all that load back up to the top of the shoulder blades, um, which is where you kind of want to pull through. So, but the techno hunt, definitely mind your P's and Q's there, man. (laughs) Speaking from experience. Yeah. It's it's fun. I know it's fun, but... I think if you remove the walking ones, you're okay. Yeah, for sure. I think I'm just going to remove all the walking ones. Because there's a few – you could choose, by the way. You choose what scenes you want to see. And there's some where they're just eating and they're just sitting there that's, and you got a 15 that's second. That's the ones to learn. Yeah. Yeah, that, those are the ones to make good shots on. There's also some of them where you get the tiniest opening. Like they're not even quartering away. You really would never take the shot. They're, you, they're just showing you their ass. Yeah. And there's like a little side area where you can kind of clip the heart. Mm-hmm. But there's not much. Yeah. You know, I mean, you wouldn't take the shot. Yeah. You just wouldn't take the shot. It's not worth it. Because, like, if you're an inch off, left or right, you're just, you have a wounded animal. Inch off left, you're hitting in the shoulder and it's taking off. Inch off right, you're shooting in the ass. Yeah, I think if you're someone that wants to do the techno hunt, just be mindful about that. If you can select the ones that you're picking, then pick the ones where you're not having to rush the shot. You're not shooting something that's walking or moving through. I mean, those are like exceptions to real world hunting, but not something. If you practice those, you're going to literally be, you're rehearsing and ingraining impossible shots. I mean, it's not like those are what you want. You would be way better off learning how to make great shots um, in a perfect scenario and then having to improvise when, when you had to. But also learning... You know, if, if this is where my shot is, having your feet and it, having your bow and everything pointed in that direction and waiting there so that you can come to full draw right when it's passing a tree or something and coming into that spot, and then you're there waiting on it. But when the screen just turns on and he's already, like, moving in, you haven't truly had time to prepare and pick your lane. It's mm. I mean, it's just – it's a video game. Yeah. You know, that's what it is. It's a It's a big video game, and – you just have to mentally, if you're doing that, I've seen so many guys, we used to, I used to do dart leagues, you know, before techno hunt, there was the dart system and we did dart league. And I think most people probably listening that's been in archery for very long, but yeah, I mean, 20 years ago or even more than that, 25 years ago, the dart league you know that people didn't shoot like five spot leaks because dart was so popular that everyone wanted to do the video game hunts so you would have your 
one hour that you would shoot and it was always like two man teams and you and your team would shoot and they would combine the scores and you just have these weekly leagues. What do you, I don't know what you're saying. Like, what do you mean by dart league? Dart was the system. D A R T. Okay. What does so that mean? It was just like a techno. It was like a pool league. Same thing, like yeah. techno hunt. You're shooting yeah. at a video game. Yep. Mm-hmm. Every every week, the teams would play a different disc, and then they just tally the scores. And then after like a twelve week run, whoever's team had the highest scores would be like the winners of the dart league at the archery shop. But the problem was. So many guys would come out of those dart leagues just punching the shit out of their lease <laughs> because they'd get so amped up. And especially when, you know, they would post scores on big, you know, big old, like, bulletin boards. So you'd come in and you'd know, oh, you know, we got to shoot this, man, to beat those guys this week. And then all of a sudden you get down those last few shots and you know you're, like, right there on the edge. I just saw people come unglued, man, start mm-hmm. freaking ripping the triggers. You don't want to do that. No, you don't want to do that. What release would you recommend to someone if they did want to shoot a finger trigger? Um, I would say, um, I don't know. I I shoot uh, I shoot the. Um, I've got a one shot. I've got an RX one. The lucky was a good. I don't even release. know what the RX one looks like. Uh, the only ones I've really used, I've used the Wise Guy. Which yep. if you if you tell that thing a secret, it goes off. I <laughs> think that thing just it goes off so easy. Yeah. I guess the idea is you, you're not gonna punch it because it's just you're just gonna put your finger on it and it's just gonna go off. Yeah. Well, that's a good way to shoot them. I mean, it is a good way to shoot them if you can get your finger there and actually just continually build pressure until it goes. Well, I've shot them before in my yard where I put my finger like literally in front of the trigger, just barely touching it, and then I get into position, and then I go into my back tension. It just goes off. Yeah. It goes off real quick. So you have to really be steady mm-hmm. before you begin your pull. Yep. And you have to make sure that you resist the the urge to get that squeeze, you know? <laughs> It'll that's, just that's go, what people baby, do. Go, yeah. It'll just go, baby, go. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to go, baby, go. No, you do not. Well, I was watching um, the Western Hunter, and um, what is Homeboy's name? That's on that show. Not Chris Denham, the other guy. God damn it! You watch more than I do. I know I do. I really like him too. Damn it! I'll look it up. He's uh, Cam's friend. Huh, let me find it real quick. Um, but you figure it out. What he uses is uh, a Carter, and he must have it set really hard because he gets his finger on it deep. That's what I like. I like to curl my finger completely around the post like this. You know, get it all the way around the post with the index finger so that you can actually relax the thumb and the other fingers. Um, and then pull through with the whole hand versus just pulling with the finger. Yeah. The tip of the index finger is so sensitive. Nate Simmons. Okay. Sorry, Nate. I really like that guy, too. I like his show. show's fucking awesome. That's one of my favorite uh, hunting shows on TV. It's really well done. Western Hunter? Yeah. It's very legit. You know, but he was shooting a Carter for a while. It looked like he was shooting a wise choice or, or rather a first choice, like the one that I like. But now, some of the times, he's using a Carter um, wrist strap. I mean, you could see him, like, hooking 
his finger on that thing. Yep. He's putting a lot of pressure on that thing and getting his anchor and then pulling through the shot. Like, there's no way that thing's going off by, like, accident. You know, you have to really pull Yeah, that's that how I shoot mine, too. I like to get – for the index finger, I like to take the tip of the finger out of the equation because mm-hmm. the tip of the finger knows sensitivity way more than the rest. So I like to really get that trigger – kind of around the inside of the curl of your finger. Mm-hmm. And then as you draw back, you've obviously got pressure on, you know, you're squeezing with your ring finger and uh, pinky and middle finger and thumb. You're kind of wrapped around that release as you pull back. Right. And once I get my finger curled around that, I'll actually relax those other fingers off so that I'm literally all the pressures on the wrist strap and I literally have one finger wrapped around that trigger. Mm. And that way, as I pull through, I'm not moving my finger anymore or moving my other hands. But you never feel like that is something that you want to do when you're hunting. You like when I've was last done time it. You, I mean, was last time it. you hunted with one of those? A wrist strap? Mm, I don't know. It might have been three years ago or so. Mm-hmm. I hunted with, with one. I'm not really sure why. There's just been times where I have. Um, I like to try different things. Sometimes people say, well, why don't you ever do this? So that that's what I do. Just like one of the new hunting modes I'm setting up is a um, one of the Power Maxes just because it's a price point bow. And I know there's a lot of people out there that, you know, it's not in their budget to get a brand new Carbon RX-1. So, you know, they want something that's half that price. So, Would you recommend someone getting a price point bow from 2018 or maybe like a Defiant from last year? Well, depending on if you can if you can find a Defiant, like a regular Pro Defiant aluminum, Pro Defiant, if you can find one at the right price, I mean, that was a great bow. I loved mine. Shot the heck out of it. Um, those DFX cams are great. Um, it's going to be a little bit better bow. But, yeah, I think if you can find a new, older model, high-end model that's just older so they're clearancing it out i think that's probably a good option versus getting a brand new price point Mm, yeah tricky right it's like some people like their bow and they just like to keep that bow for a few years and other people are like they're getting better every year you got to get a new one getting better they're getting better oh yeah yeah you continually everything's changing you know it's just like a lot of guys bought a new site probably last year even at the beginning of this year and then all of a sudden now this thing came out and i'm excited i've i've had the same site on my bow for 20 years well i'm excited because it's yours (laughs) and uh, i think it's really well made i'm I'm also interested to see how that light thing works like the way you were explaining it that it's on your roller guard it's, a it's just button. a little box that's right. got a control. It's I've never seen switches. anything like that. I've only seen them on the site itself where it's like a little thing that screws in place. They're, it's just a computer, pretty much a computer-controlled um, like rheostat mm-hmm. is what it is. Right. And is that thing going to be durable? Like, Yeah, they've been using them for around? years on the, on the 3D tours. They've been using them for a long time because mm-hmm. a lot you get into really dark, dark canopies and mm-hmm. targets right and a lot of times the people that set up the range if they're good at setting up the range they'll set you in a very dark area where you're not getting much light on your peep and then they'll put the target in even a darker little hole so sometimes it gets tough to see um, so you need the clarity but you don't want to necessarily illuminate your whole site housing so that little rheostat just barely lights up that pin just enough to where it works really good now there's some states where it's still illegal to have any kind of electronics on your bow including a light right mm-hmm. 
Yeah. That seems so silly to me. Yeah, even some states not even legal to have mechanical heads. Well, the mechanical heads thing, I think, is a – it's sort of a <coughs> – it's a residual effect of the older, older mechanicals that sometimes were very faulty. Right. right? It seems like if they were really good right off the bat, like Rage Tripans came out with the new collars in 2006 or whenever the fuck it was when they first yeah. started doing that, you would probably have a lot more people that would be on board. But I heard a lot of terrible things about those old ones, like the first, very first mechanicals that came out, a lot of failures. And if, the, you know, you got nightmare stories from people who aren't that good in the first place and shooting into bushes and <laughs> hitting animals in the dick. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of things that can go wrong. With some of the first expandables, too, people didn't really understand that depending on the design, some designs take more energy to push through, especially the very first ones were all jackknife style. And with that means, you know, if you're shooting 50 pounds, some of those first ones, especially when they, they started making bigger and bigger cutting diameters, people just wanted that massive cut because they mm -hmm. wanted to just see this huge hole through something. But right. when they go out and they're shooting a two-inch expandable with 50 pounds that, that has a jackknife style deployment, it's not a very good combination. And that education wasn't out there. So I think some of those first stories went out where, you know, a few animals got hit with them. Maybe they, you know, maybe the penetration wasn't as high. And all of a sudden they just said, okay, well, we're going to go with this. But a lot of times those rules are just old. Um, certain parts of the rules you could say were, okay, I can see where their argument is. Maybe that'll make sense. But then in a different format, it's like, okay, well, this doesn't make any right. sense at all. Yeah. Like you're going to allow – someone to shoot like there's no minimum pull poundage on bows for this state except you're not allowed to shoot a mechanical like that's weird yeah it's weird you're going to tell me i can my kid can come out here and shoot 22 pounds and shoot at an animal but as long as he doesn't have a light on his sight or a mechanical broadhead then he's fine with that i mean it seems pretty crazy yeah don't you, do you think that there should be some sort of requirement for proficiency to bow hunt like maybe there should be some sort of a license that you get where they set up targets at 20 and 40 yards and, you know, you have to have a consistent score, like above 80%. Some areas they do. I've done multiple ones. I've had times where I wasn't allowed to hunt unless I did them. Uh, like one, where? One of them was in uh, Denmark. I went there one time mm. and did uh, kind of they have like a little hunter's education class and stuff and you have to actually shoot and you have to – I forget how many times, but you have to hit a certain size target X amount of times out of X amount or you fail the infield practicality. Another place was um, when I lived in Wisconsin, Fort McCoy uh, was a military base and they did hunts within the compounds because the deer, you know, you drive around, there's just deer in between the barracks and everything. Um, and at that, it was, and it was pretty easy, but you had to hit a pie plate like X amount of times out of so many. So you would have to shoot. And I think it's important. I think, um, I sat in, I took, uh, my French buddy Antoine to a bow hunter safety class so he could do some hunts here in the States. So we went to an Iowa bow hunting, uh, safety course, which I took mine when I was like nine. So I had just forgot all about what you had to do for it. Um, and there just wasn't, there was stuff that I think was missing. You know, I think 
and the instructors, some instructors are way better than others. Some instructors are actual game wardens and they're really passion, passionate about talking about the ethics and shot angles and they're really passionate. Like my game warden is really big into like he tries to actually go out and create a blood trail so that people have to learn how to follow blood. And then they he always tries to have um, a roadkill or something, you know, fresh roadkill so that he can actually show field dressing so that people aren't out there hunting and literally don't know what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think all that's great. Like, I think yeah. that's really good. When I got my guides license for British Columbia, there was – you didn't have to do shooting practicality, um, but the test was pretty – pretty demanding like you really had to understand some rules Mm. and i think all that i think all that's good i mean i think i think all that stuff's important yeah i do too i mean there's got to be a lot of people that are really interested in bow hunting and like anything else there's going to be people that overstep their ability they're gonna go out there and they're not really totally prepared yet to and they might take a poke you know 60 yard shot or something like that and they're just really not not proficient enough to do something like that yeah there's so much that goes into it you know you can shoot we can shoot here at, you know we were shooting 45 yards for a few hours a day and there's a lot of animals i would never try to make a 45 yard shot on i mean there's some chipmunk that, yeah <laughs> probably a chipmunk <laughs> but uh there's some that just they move too fast right um some are constantly moving all the time like there's been times on hogs to where I just haven't, like, I, I just don't like taking a, a very long shot. Unless there's some times where they're rooting around in tall grass where they're just sitting there and they're in one spot and their head's down. But when they're, like, kind of trying to find food and they're, like, in their their transition or their travel mode, there's just no way you'd want to take a shot because they're just always moving and hogs are super tough i mean they are really tough andy and i the second day we went out and found this we could see this this hog um way down this gas pipeline and he was uh kind of cruising down the little uh four-wheeler path that was going down the pipeline or gas i don't know if it was a gas line or a pipeline but uh we went down there and we were trying to stay in the switchgrass and just find our shot to the little road that he was kind of moving around. And I mean, we followed this sucker in circles because he was just trying to find food somewhere. He was just going all around trying to find grubs or whatever. And I mean, we were just following this thing like cat and mouse for probably 30 minutes. Just, I'm talking maybe 300 yards total, just down, back, over, up, all around. And he kept, you know, kind of raising up to take the shot. And I just said, dude, you know, we got to we gotta get in a clearing. We got to be there. We got to get in front of him. We got to let him come to us and you be ready. Because when we're going up and you have your shot and then you're raising your bow right then and pulling back, it's just a recipe for disaster. I mean, you experienced that when we were whitetail hunting uh, and that buck came out that was on that doe. We were in a food plot. And, you know, I kept saying, pull back, pull back, pull back. And you were, you were wanting to pull back when the shot was like there. Cause mm-hmm. you know, in your mind, you were just thinking when I get the shot, I like, I'm going to draw back and I'm going to make my shot. But he was, I knew that when he's moving and chasing that doe, 
there's going to come a point where he's just going to stop and then he's going to give you three or four or five seconds to be able to make the shot happen and then he's going to be pushing that doe again so i kept wanting you to draw back while he was moving and like kind of get your bow pointed in the general direction and let him get tired and stop for those few seconds because that's when your shot was going to be there not when he stopped like if you you know and you, i think you drew back like three four or five times that's a good argument also for fixed pins because uh, oh, yeah. i was shooting a single pin mm-hmm. so yeah you're trying to do both you're yeah. trying to do everything i was trying to range him i was trying to adjust my pin i was trying to figure out where he's going to be had a bunch of spots already ranged but it was like there was so many calculations going on in my head i, I didn't know when to pull back and it's hard when you're in a food plot because it's open. Mm-hmm. It's not like you can range this tree over here and say, okay, I know that one's 26. I know that one's right. that. When you're looking at a two-acre clover patch, it's literally like a big golf green. Yeah. I mean, it all yeah. looks the same. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh, – and that, you know, because that's my style of hunting and I experience the whitetail rut a lot and I experience – a lot of my spot and a lot of my spot and stock hunts that I do for bears, you're not allowed to bait in British Columbia. So, a lot of times you'll see those bears, and they're, I call it a, a bear walk, you're, and that's a lot like a hog walk where they're just they're just going and they're just constantly moving to try to find food. They're kind of sniffing through stuff, covering ground. They're just trying to find something easy to eat somewhere. And when they're on those bear walks or when they're on those hog walks and you get up behind them and you try to make that shot, if all of a sudden they're at 41 and by the time you clip your release on and raise up and they're still making those few steps, well, now they're 44, now they're 45. And it you really have to know your setup to know, okay, if I had my sight on 41, where do I hold for 44? Mm, I mean, right. it's, it's different. So... Uh, Fixed pins with multiple ones has been what I like because I just, for my deer hunts, um, my deer hunts are like chasing whitetails in, you know, either moving around chasing does in food plots or in transition areas like where you and I hunted, um, where you ended up shooting your buck. Like that wasn't a spot where deer come to, to stay. Right. Like they're not coming there to stop and bed they're not coming there to eat that was a pinch point that was a neck down we saw a lot of rutting activity when we'd see when they'd come our way we'd know they'd filter on those few trails that came past us and once they came past us they're going to wherever they're going so in those situations you're just you don't have the time to like range set double check your range make your shot it just gets hard yeah 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 it's uh there's so much to learn that's uh, one of the more fascinating things about bow hunting to me is that the the learning curve is so giant. There's so much to learn. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's just so much to it. And I just didn't anticipate that when I first got into it. I was like, well, you know, you find the animals, figure out a way to shoot them. It's all that, you know. <laughs> and then you tack on the, the how much more difficult it is to bow hunt than it is to rifle hunt. I mean, it is probably more than 10 times more difficult in a lot of circumstances yeah oh yeah yeah much closer yeah if you told if you told a gun hunter if you told a gun a gun hunter that they had to get 30 yards or less to make their shot success rates would be way down for sure right just in that and then 
imagine not being able to just put a scope on there and pull the trigger you know it's a lot that's why a lot of people are gravitating to crossbows man it's so much easier yeah i just call it a shitty gun <laughs> it's not really a bow like i like to bow hunt i use crossbow that's that's a shitty gun sir yeah yeah <laughs> that's not really a bow like i know it's stupid like the the thought process in my mind is like but be a man hold a real bow up draw it back well, you have to practice. Yeah. I mean. But it's just so much more satisfying. Like um, like that uh, the elk that I shot in Utah, that Under Armour hunt, that was so much more satisfying than if I shot that thing with a crossbow. I knew it was a tough shot. I'm, you know, I'm threading the needle in between all these bushes and trees and stuff. I had this little opening. The, the bull stopped in a perfect position. It was a perfect release. Like all those things, I played that back in my mind hundreds of times because mm-hmm. it all came together it's yeah. so like that's what it's what's so satisfying is that all that practice all that practice over and over all those thousands and thousands of arrows i shot all the concentrating on the proper technique concentrating on the whole shot process in my mind and then executing it on film on a big animal mm-hmm. like all of that like it wouldn't have been if i just put a 300 wind mag and squeeze the trigger on that sucker that wouldn't have been nearly as no, interesting it's not the same no it'd it's been great i would have loved to get the meat and i would have been happy i got a big mature bull i would have been happy but not happy like i was when i saw that arrow <coughs> sink right through his heart i do want to get back to um we didn't talk much about that garmin mm, yeah okay. um so with the garmin Everyone's seen Joe Rogan's logo, the Joe Rogan experience, where he's got that shit-eating grin on his face and he's got <laughs> the third eye. This is actually a lot like um, what the site looks like for that um, Garmin because you actually have a small little circle that's kind of in the top third or top quarter of the screen. It's almost And it's like a little hologram. Mm-hmm. And it has a bunch of arrows that are all like pointing towards the center like this right um you know they're it they're literally pointing all towards this small hole and there's like rows of them so as you torque the bow you can see the arrows like move off and you have to you have to have your bow handle twisted exactly right so that you have a little circle inside of the very center of all those arrows and it's about the size of that eye on that cup holder that's Mm. about the size of it um, so, I mean, if you're at full draw, you have to look at the top part of your thing. You've got to tw- make sure you're twisting your handle or not having torque enough to where you're able to center that light. And then when that's centered, the illuminated reticle that's in the lens is telling you that you're actually lasering what you're pointing at. Because if you're torquing the bow, you know, you could be lasering something way over there, even though right. you're... You know, it's not like a red dot site where right, the right. hologram moves as you turn it. Um, Does anybody ever do that? Does anybody ever have a red dot? Like, if you're if you're going to have a range finder, they've got. Red why dot. can't you have a red dot? They've, like, got, they've got red dot sites. You can put, like a lot of crossbows have red dots. Yeah, but has anybody ever done that for a compound bow where you press a button and the range? Like that seems like it'd be crazy. Like you would get a range. And then you would get a red dot on the target. Well, that that instead is instead of looking at a sight, you would just be looking at a dot on the target, and that well, would be where you aim. Well, that is what that is what the Garmin does. It, it does it put it on the target though. Or it puts it on the screen. It 
puts it well, on so that glass. Well, so does a red glass. dot. A red dot puts it on the screen. You oh, it doesn't to... put it, not like a laser uh, pointer, like a laser well, no, pointer. Even a laser pointer, you have to put it on the target. Right. I mean, it's not like auto lock where you just. Right, but you would see it on the target, and that's where you're going to hit. Mm-hmm. Like, no one's done that with a sight, right? The IQ has a laser on it. So you can see the laser hit the, the animal? Yeah, you can see that you actually you adjust your laser so that it lines up exactly to the top pin. So where your 20-yard pin is, there's a laser projecting off the bow. It hits the same. So you can actually turn the laser on, and you can draw back, and where the laser is pointing, it gives you a secondary reference that that's where the range finder is actually ranging to. Wow, so you see the laser? Mm-hmm. But you can't. Oh. The laser isn't necessarily your pin because a, a laser is only good for one distance with a bow because the arrow arcs. Right, right. You know, right. it's not like, you know, it's just, well, it's just like with a gun. If you dial in a laser at one distance, you have to know how high or how low it hits. If, you know, if you come in close quarters and your laser is set to 20 yards, you know that, okay, you know, I'm going to be hitting over the top of this laser. I got to hold mm-hmm. it down. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, it's nice for a secondary reference so that if you're in the heat of the moment and you're not able to line up all those little arrows and get that dot perfectly in the center and then use your center reticle, squeeze the button to range, then it lights up the yardage, then the correct reticle will light up. And then, I mean, I wouldn't have been able to do that bear shot with that thing. Right. I mean, it wouldn't have happened. Right. I would have got the distance on the first one, and and I think I think there's a setting where if you double tap it, maybe if you hit it twice, it lights up all of your pins, like your entire row of pin, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, all the way out. Mm-hmm. It'll light up the whole thing. Yeah. And then it's just like a fixed pin. But, again, it's it's on a piece of glass. It's projected. You know, it's hitting a mirror, projecting across, so – get rain in there right it's gonna be kind of a pain you know seems like though if they keep it's a lot to think it, about it really is but if they keep improving it and it becomes bulletproof yeah it seems like what, what the good thing about it is you would always know the exact yardage and you would have the exact pin right there mm-hmm. so it wouldn't be there'd be no gap shooting there'd be no he took a step i think he's at 35 now there would be none of that it would just be that's where he is Instant, bing, bing. The thing that would be awesome is if whatever you range with your range finder that you have on your chest, Mm -hmm. when you range that, if it says 66, that's the exact pin that lights up in your sight. Mm -hmm. That would be pretty dope. Yeah. I mean, that way you could, you know, you could literally range up on something that's in the food plot range it it says 55 and then just rate as soon as you squeeze the trigger on your on your range finder it tells you the distance and it sends a signal to the to your site that says 55 yard pin oh right like that could be cool if the two were connected like bluetooth or something but isn't that what the garmin does when you range and you press a button it gives you the pin for whatever that it does but you're having what i don't like about it is you're having to range through something that you're holding this far out in front of you Mm, right i mean and you're trying to line up this teeny little thing when you're in the moment and you jerk your bow back and you've got a 350 inch bull elk there and your heart's beating out of your chest now you've got to have no torque in your grip you've got to center your peep you got to find that freaking dot you got to make sure that you're lining up on the right spot ranging it you know it 
There's a lot to think about. The other good thing about it, though, is that clear sight picture. You just get that floating green dot. That's mm -hmm. it. Just one floating green dot exactly where you want to hit. I would think that that alone would be, like, really good for accuracy. It would. It would. It's just like having – it's just like what I shoot in my target, sc target scopes. Mm -hmm. I've got a lens with a – with a small dot in the very center of the lens. Does anybody hunt with one of those? No, because once you get water on your lens, it's a pain in the ass. I think Lee uses a scope on his site. Uh, he has magnification? Yeah, I think he uses a 2x magnification on his site. Yeah. Make his site picture a little bit bigger. Some people need that too. As your eye, you know, As your vision diminishes, some people need to see a little bit more. Mm-hmm. These are all things that target archers who go out and who have shot 3Ds and things like that, they just know the frustration of getting lenses wet, you know, right. trying to – having a dot on your lens that smears off. I mean, there's just yeah, – If you're in a place like Prince of Wales. <laughs> yeah, that thing would be a nightmare. Yeah, or you go up and, you know, imagine being up in bear camp where it's, you know, sub-zero, how long the battery is going to last. You know, you can take extra batteries up with you. Mm. You know, it's it and if you say you bump the site, on, say you're horseback, you bump that site, like what? How much? How much goes into sighting that thing in? Right. If you bumped, if you bumped or bend a fiber or bent a thing, you could get your site back in, even if it was bent completely out of whack. You could just move your left and right up and down on single pins and be back hunting pretty quick. Right. If that thing's a process to to do to get it sighted back in, then you're kind of kind of screwed they say it's just as easy to sight in as a regular fixed pin sight it could be with the learning curve i mean it mm. definitely could be yeah do you think that that's the future that that's what's going to happen they're going to figure out a way to make that more and more efficient and then what i mean it would whatever gives you the most ethical shot and the more likelihood of success yeah as, well as long as harvest rates don't increase to the point where people get less opportunities right yeah i think I think any of that progression is good, but I also know that I've learned over the years that simplicity, keep it simple, stupid. I mean, my equipment, as much as people want to say, why do you still shoot that? Why do you still? I literally pick stuff that is as lowest for being problematic as possible. And if there is a problem that I can literally fix it with one set of Allen wrenches that are in my quiver, that's it. Like, I want to be able to keep it that simple. And I feel like through all the places that I've gone, it's been reliable that way. So, mm. you know. Makes sense. Makes sense. I mean, that's one of the more important things about uh, the like having the resource of asking a guy like you who spent so many hours, so many days in the field, so many hunting trips, so many animals. It's like you've, you've seen it all before and you've got to kind of boil down. Mm to like what's what's important and what's not important so whereas some people might not see all the hiccups in one of these things you're going to just sit back you're going to mm. sit back and go you, good luck with that for a couple of years and it may be i mean it may be awesome i yeah. know guys that go out and they've got side rods they've got powered scopes um a buddy of mine uh that films for me some his name is justin peak 
Justin goes out, he's got a shoot-through riser, shoots a side rod, shoots a front rod. I mean... Shoot-through riser? So he does, has a riser just like a target bow? Yeah, he uses his 3D bow and he hunts with it. Wow. So, I mean, and I've seen, I've seen turkey footage where you, like, see the stabilizer, like, go out of the blind because it's so long. You can see the stabilizer, like, out the one window. Is he more accurate that way? I think that's why he shoots it. I think he feels comfortable with it. Um, a buddy of mine, like some of my very first hunting DVDs was called DD Bow Hunting. And um, have you ever seen any of those? No. Oh, yeah. I have to send you some. You'll laugh. But uh, Darren was shot on some of the field teams with me and stuff. He was a good target archer. Um, he was one of the engineers at Hoyt. And his hunting bow, I mean, it was almost – and he hunted out west a lot in open country. Uh, but when he came whitetail hunting, I was looking at this. I'm like, this guy is literally pulling a target bow up in the tree. It's a target bow without a without a powered lens on it. That's all it is. Side rods, freaking front rods. I mean, it just his peep, peep size was small. The freaking front sight was super small. I mean, everything was... It was Single pin? Um, no, he had a... He had a he had a multi-pin sight, but he also shot it to where he always centered the pin in the center of the peep, regardless of what pin he shot. His peep was really small, so like he would adjust his head to where his 40-yard pin would be in the center or his 30-yard pin would be in the center. I've never liked that method. I like to center my housing, then move the whole thing up or down. You yeah. know, I, don't, I don't like to have these four pins. And then I'm like trying to center this one here in the middle. Then I'm moving my head so this one here is in the middle or this one here. It never really worked out for me. But that sounds like a lot of opportunity for inconsistency. It works for some people. Yeah. That's why, like I said, I can't, I can't, I can't tell people not to do it. I can just tell people that these are the reasons why I avoid it. And there's a lot of that in pool as well. There's a lot of people, especially people that started playing real young, where they have a sidearm delivery, where instead of uh, the cue being up and down, like straight. Yeah, you hold it very. Uh, you hold it very up and down. You're like really curled under when you play. Yeah, I'm like out to the side, aren't I? Yeah, a lot of people are. But they, what you, you re- don't realize is when you're doing that, you're kind of driving through the ball at a sideways ways angle yeah i bet whereas i'm driving through the ball as straight as possible well that's probably why i miss all these cuts constantly because my what i'm seeing with my line of sight isn't the direction my arms right and you're putting unnecessary english on the ball that you're not aware of yeah the ball gets like a little extra spin like spin is important if you know how to use it but if you don't know that you're using it and you're spinning the ball you're deflecting it's going to go left and right it's going to squirt off the tangent line (coughs) You ready to get some lunch? Yeah, let's go get some lunch. All right. Hey, knock on, everybody. Knock on, everybody. We're getting out of here. We're going to go eat. I'm starving. So hopefully you like I'm going to take you to a legit Mexican place. Is that where we're going? Yeah. Que habla espanol? Si. Si. Well, you're going to have to. (laughs) These people barely speak English, but they make bomb-ass Mexican food. (laughs) It it better be too legit not to make me shit. I got a flight tonight. Too legit to shit. Hey, hey. (laughs) (laughs) All right. See you, everybody. We're going to eat Mexican and uh, probably a margarita. I will anyway. Yeehaw. All right. Later. Be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing. Knockonarchery.com.